If you would turn with me to, in your Bibles to John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you have always heard me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. The powerful and compassionate Christ we see in operation here. Never was more power ever resident in one human body than in the incarnate Christ. You've got omnipotence dwelling in a body. And yet in this, some of the deepest emotions are expressed that we see in the narrative. Uh, three great issues face all of us, and I think they're answered in this narrative. Three great issues. What is God's plan for my life? When will I see it brought about? What is God up to? Uh, and along with that, what's taking him so long? Uh, that's a pressing issue. If not with you, it certainly was with the writers of Scripture all over the place. Number two, what's death going to be like for me? What's death going to look like? Uh, not just for my loved ones, but when it's my time. What will death be like? And I think we get insights here to what the biblical view and the Christian view of dying looks like. Uh, I said to a man a while back, if I was no, not a Christian for any other reason, I'd be a Christian just for burying my loved ones. This man, who's been diagnosed with terminal cancer, said, forget about your loved ones. Wait until it's your turn to die. Then you'll wonder, do I have the kind of faith that can see me through the shadows of death with little alarm? The third thing that I think is shown uh, in this narrative that we will look at is that, uh, all right, I think God has my future. Maybe you don't believe that. All right, he may be there at death, and Christian dying may be great, but my heart is aching and my heart is breaking right now. Where in the world does that put Christ? Is he involved? 
does he care? Well, I want us to look at three points. These are great. These are just right out of heaven, so you ought to take them. You don't have any freebies today because Donna is on a cruise. Pray for her. Having a, probably having a latte right now. Three things. First thing we're going to look at, the reason for divine delays. The divine design of delay in your life. Two, I want us to look at the divine destruction of death. He's going to destroy death in this very incident, and he's going to lay the groundwork of what he will do in the future. And then thirdly, the divine display of tender emotions in the God-man. And you know, if you're a real man in America, you're supposed to be a Marlboro man. No emotion, stiff upper lip, non-feeling. No, that just means you're dead. It doesn't mean you're a man. Christ, the God-man, he had the great emotions of God, and they were actually in a masculine body. Most American males have been emotionally emasculated, and that's why they become obnoxious, because part of their humanity has been lost. Let's look at this, the divine design of delay. Uh, you kind of uh, interested when you look. First of all, verse 4, he said, hey, don't pa panic about this sickness. It's for God's glory. Well, at the time Christ said that, uh, probably Lazarus has already died. And you go through the narrative here, he is so seemingly flippant or non-concerned about the timing. Uh, timing is of all urgency. Get here before my brother dies. And he even goes down in the narrative and says, I'm really glad he died. Did you notice this? Imagine this, verse 14. Lazarus has died, and I'm so glad that our beloved is dead. Maybe they'll say that at your funeral. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. There is this total a non-shaken Christ in the midst of their crises. Come on, you got to get there. The four days, by the time they got there, it had been four days. It probably went like this. They sent the messenger to say, hey, this sickness is very serious. Go find Jesus. He's over to the east of Jordan. He's staying out of Judea because they're out to stone him and to kill him. So he went to the east of Jordan. Get out of Jerusalem. Get away from Judea. They send a messenger about a day's journey. He gets notified. He waits two more days. Then he's got a day's journey to come back to Jerusalem, which Thomas assumes they're going to their death because they're going to kill him in Judea. So he went at the risk of his own life, but it wasn't like that. Get there. And of course, Martha runs out. Where were you? Where were you? Don't worry about it at all, Martha. Don't be upset. What do you mean, don't be upset? Had you have been here four days ago, I know that you could have healed him in the room. But since you delayed, he died. Well, 
You, you believe he'll live again? Yeah, I believe in the resurrection. I'm a conservative. I'm of the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. I believe in the Old Testament teaching. At the final day, the dead will rise. And he finally has to say, wherever I am, resurrection shows up. Wherever I am, four days after the dead, four days before, if I show up, death is under control. But the big issue going on here is where in the world is God when you need him now? And that was the frustration of Martha and Mary. They believed in this Christ. They knew he was powerful. They knew he was a healer. But how come the delay? And uh, Martha says it in verse 21 through 24 that if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Don't worry, your brother will rise again. And she immediately puts it to the future. She's not even thinking, I can do it now. It's not in her mind. Later on, he talks to Mary in verse 32, same kind of concern. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I just thought about this issue. Uh, I read Psalms 13 last week, and it says, How long, O Lord, how long? How long? Sometimes even you've got faith for the future, but you don't have any faith for right now. Isn't it amazing we can believe that our sins were uh, forgiven in the past and that we've got eternity made in the future, but right now God may not show up. God's not in my presence. All things work together except the present. All things in the future will work for good because God is often delaying. I, I think of the woman who's had three miscarriages, and the clock is ticking. She wants children. When? When? That happened to my own mother. Her first boy was killed. They had Hazel. Her second boy was killed. Then three miscarriages, and they thought they were through having a family. All they had left was one girl. When? When? I've seen this with couples. We want a child. When? When? Uh, you see uh, a person waiting for a life partner, and they're getting close to 40. And you know God quits meeting your need for a life partner at 35. Some got one at 20, and they wish they were 40. <laughs> they have better powers of choice. Will you ever send me a godly wife? a godly husband. When will you ever save my family? It, it's, a, it's a hard question. But in the narrative, it's amazing that the timing of God was perfect, but it wasn't the time schedule of Mary or Martha because it looked like all was lost just due to delay. Uh, I hear things like this. Uh, Jacob, you don't know, we don't have time to look at the narrative, but here Joseph has gone into Egypt. He thinks he's dead. The boys go down because of famine. And finally in the plot to get them there, 
Joseph said, do you have any other brothers? Oh, we got one, but man, we couldn't take him because he's the baby and our father would sure enough die and they go back so you can't have any more food and I'm going to keep one of you until you bring Benjamin back. And if you read the narrative, when they tell this to Jacob, Jacob says, everything is against me. Everything is against me. And he had no idea of knowing everything was working for him. His son was the vice emperor of Egypt, and it's his plot to take care of his dad into old age, to feed him like he'd never been fed in his life, set him up in a retirement plan in Goshen. That would be marvelous. But in the midst of when you don't know, when you don't know, when you don't know, it seems everything is against you at times, and God's delays seem to be forever. This is exactly what Mary and Martha were dealing with. Did the funeral a while back for Carolyn's cousin who took his life. But the strangest thing about it, he uh, was in church on Wednesday night with his mother, and they were singing the praises of the Lord. He'd come out of a drug culture. He was out of work. He was frustrated there. He had different problems. But it took his life. And when I'm doing the funeral, the big question is of everybody, where was God last Friday when Jimmy took his life? Where was God? And uh, God is never frustrated even with suicide victims. He's the same place he was when his son was crucified. And there's something you've got to wrestle with in life. Will you wait on God while God is saying delay? It's not my time. It's not my time. And in the meantime, I'm going to see if you'll trust me. Or will you take matters into your own hands? And uh, I... I I hear of someone that did that. Uh, when you're not able to get the children you want now, take Hagar. That sounds good. Sarah can't have the children I want anyway. So we start inventing other ways to make it happen. And many times we create our greatest disasters. Well, we'll move on. The narrative also shouts another thing. I believe if any place in the Gospels it just shouts the view of Christ and what the death of the righteous look like. We get this marvelous view that verses 11 through 14, listen to what he says. He says, after saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, I think if you were marrying Martha, you wouldn't say, you gotta be kidding. You don't even know a corpse. He hadn't even shown up yet. He doesn't know. He hasn't seen him in the grave. The, the girl's already afraid that decomposition and the odor of a decaying body is taken over the tomb. But he said, don't worry about it. He's gone to sleep. Jesus, you don't seem to have an accurate stethoscope. The man's dead. The death of the righteous from now on, is going to be called asleep. 
asleep, asleep. The death of the righteous is called asleep. Never the unrighteous, not the ungodly. And he says in 1 Thessalonians, he puts his own to sleep. Sleep points to rest, temporary. And by the way, we believe it's the body that sleeps, not the soul. The immaterial part of man goes to be with the Lord. And you look at Revelation 6, and we see the souls of the martyrs. They're interceding to God. You see Lazarus uh, comforted in the bosom of Abraham. We see other scenes where there's a conscious soul, spirit existence in the presence of God, but the body goes to sleep. That's the picture of death, the death of the righteous. What a picture. And so the soul, spirit comes back and reunited to the body and resurrected. But the death of a believer is called going to sleep in Jesus. And here he just keeps saying, he's asleep, he's asleep. He said this when he went to raise Jairus' daughter. She's asleep. And he put all the professional mourners out of the room. Get out of here. And told her to wake up, and she awakened. What a picture for our death. I will go to sleep in Jesus. Now, he says a little bit more than that. He goes down here and says, your brother will rise again in verse 23. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. What is he doing? Resurrection is not just a date on a calendar. Resurrection is found in a person. The one who's in charge of the resurrection program, the one who will make it happen, and the one who embodies resurrection power. I want your faith to be personal in me, not in an event. It won't happen without me. I am in charge of raising the dead. You got that, Martha? I am the resurrection, and I am eternal life. It's found in me. He's trying to get her, quit looking to the future, say, wherever I am, there's resurrection power, there's eternal life. You're looking at it right now. Then he says, whoever believes in me, who is believing in me, though he should physically die, yet shall he live. And everyone who is eternally alive has eternal life and is believing in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Four of you do. Do you believe this? It is an amazing thing. Jesus says this in John 5. He says it here. He said in John 8, 52, whoever is believing in me and has eternal life, there is a sense you will never see death. Argue with Christ about it. The mortal body, we drop it off. Disease, accident, 
Who knows how you're going to exit this world? But he who has eternal life, who has Christ, he says eternal life never will see death. There is no death, no termination to it. The mortal body can drop aside. We'll resurrect the body later. But you never miss a beat. You never miss a beat when you have eternal life. Even while you're physically alive, your last breath here, wow, you just keep going on. You never cease to exist. You never lose consciousness. You just drop the body, move out of it like a tent, and you're at home with the Lord. But you will not see death. He said it. I'm not making up a doctrine, I hope. I will not see death. Well, what do you see? I see the resurrection and the life. I will see Christ, who's in charge of my death, mortally, and he's already ended my spiritual death. I have eternal life that can never see death. It can even wake you up in the morning service. I mean, now what? Uh, you can't. If you were a Greek reading this gospel, and the Greeks were expected to read it, they never heard anything in their life like this from Philo, Plato, or any of the Greek temples because the body just is annihilated, is gone forever, and there is no afterlife. The only thing close to it would be reincarnation. And pray you come back as a good ant to swim out there. But Christ is saying, Mary, Martha, the resurrection and the life. Now you say, well, that's nice. Anybody could say that, right? Come on. You do this in the 60s and you're strung out on drugs, anybody believe you. But watch. He goes on in the narrative and he goes to where Lazarus is and he shouts, Lazarus, come out. And what did he do? I'm telling you right now, we have no gospel where you cannot conquer death. Death is the reminder that sin and its wages are ever before the human race, but someone entered, and in 33 years, he controlled death. He's saying, when I speak the word even to a corpse, it comes alive. You can count on me pulling off the resurrection, and you can take my word for everything I said. There, he is the divine destruction of death as we've known it. He make, turns it into a sleep. He says, your life will not be terminated. And that doesn't mean much when you're 20 and when you're cool. It means a whole lot when you get old, quasi-ugly, and barely can get around. This looks better all the time. I shall never die. Because how can you ever really die when the resurrection and the life lives in you? Eternal life never dies. The mortal body we drop off to remind us we had an earthly existence and we lived among uh, in a, just regular ordinary life. C.S. Lewis called our body our earthly tent. Paul said the same thing. We just drop it off, and God will resurrect it someday, but it would be totally a new outfit, 
made like and unto his. What a great prospect when you know Christ. Not only heaven made, but death conquered for you. He can conquer death, and he has for us. He goes on in this marvelous narrative. He does something that uh, is a little bit of a shocking thing. He enters the narrative. Uh, he sees Mary, who is so special to him. Uh, verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in her world, she's just thinking, timing is the only thing we missed, timing. When Jesus saw her weeping, and it was really a wailing kind of weeping, vocal, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, a Jewish funeral in these times hired professional mourners for two days. They were professional weepers. That was a legitimate funeral. So you had professionals, and you also had a woman really weeping, Mary, the sister. And when he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. If you ever can read The Person and Work of Christ by Benjamin Warfield, which most of you have never heard of in your life, a great Princetonian theologian. He wrote a famous chapter called The Emotional Life of Our Savior. It's one of the most magnificent chapters I've ever read in anything. And uh, in other words, the Lord had an active e emotional life, compassion, tears, anger. He had the gamut of emotions, all without sin. An emotional life that was just a part of his humanity. And this is a tough verse for us to understand. The translation, what did you say? Was deeply moved? How many of you have deeply moved? NIV, is that what that is? It's deeply moved? This is ESV says that. Uh, does any have, uh, was angry? Any translations that way? The word literally means was angry. But because of the context, it doesn't seem fitting that Christ should be angry. Come on, a woman's weeping, a man's died. What in the world are you angry about? And so they've, they've taken this middle ground because there's no way in the Greek language that this word means uh, sympathetic necessarily. It really means anger, sternly rebuke. Other places it's translated. To be stern with, to charge people. Uh, it was to be agitated to the point of anger. That's the word. But men have blended it by the context it's used in to be he was troubled. And we don't know what emotion that was. The trouble seems to be primarily, he was outraged. He was angry at the situation. We'll have to wait a bit to see why would he be angry. But I think that's the primary meaning of the word. He was outraged. 
He was angry at it. And then it goes on to say, and greatly trouble, which meant he's doing this. It literally means to shake. The body was, he, he was like this. He is agitated, and, and his body is showing it. But watch. This is why the word gets softened in translation. Watch. But while he's watching this, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then he burst out weeping. The word literally means to have tears, but it's an aorist tense. And it means all of a sudden, emotion flooded him, and he is in a weeping, the same word used of him in the garden. That when he was being tested by God, he, he wept, and with strong crying to God to deliver him, he, he's crying out, Hebrews 5. And so you see these emotions running through the one who has perfect control, the one who has the ultimate power to change it, but he enters into it with anger, agitation, sympathy, tears. And so what all is going on in the emotions? Well, I would quote from Warfield and, and other scholars, the anger is probably this. He's angry at what sin can do, that its end result is death, and that death has stolen his beloved friend, stolen a couple, two sisters and a brother who always waited on him, were always kind to him, He's outraged in the face of death. He's outraged at the lack of hope in the room. The professional wailers are wailing, playing their music, shedding their alligator tears for a fee. And he sees little hope being expressed in the situation. And even if you believe in a future resurrection, you ought not to be showing hopeless grief. Mary and Martha. He's agitated. Calvin said he's like a man that goes from here like a warrior marching to the tomb. I will destroy the enemy called death who has stolen my friend. I am agitated about it. I am troubled. And then he burst out with the emotion. He's weeping with Mary and with Martha. He seems overwhelmed at the scene. And so uh, scholars, they struggle. How can you have all these emotions in one place? It seems out of context. I have to say, as I thought, was trying to figure out this interpretation, I'd like to make a true confession here. Uh, it's weird, and you may need another pastor. When my kids grew up and they got hurt, my first emotion was always anger. Any men, Matt, you just, your face just gave it away. How many men ever get angry when your kids get hurt? Would you raise them high so I don't look stupid? Sit the, well, look at the men and the women. Say, wow, they're weird. I, I would. I'd get angry. And this is where it was. I'm saying, who hurt them? Who hurt them? 
uh, or even when it was an accident on their part. Couldn't you have looked better? you got to pay attention. I can't have you getting hurt. Men, is that the way you kind of think? Come, come on, I don't hear any of you men. I'm out here on my own now. Because, I mean, they already said he's sadistic. No, I would get, I just, I'd get agitated. And, and first of all, I want, and they're, ah, ah, now let daddy tell you how to do it the next time. Ah, ah. They're not in any mood for instruction. Let's first get it fixed. I saw, they sent me a video last night. My grandson was in a basketball game, took 13 stitches in his head. Guy did like that. Well, if I was on the sideline with Jason, I, we'd run, run out there and bam, don't hit our grandson. <laughs> I know that doesn't seem godly, but I don't want anyone hurting my kid. Uh, now let me get meek. <laughs> but you know what? After anger or in the same con. By the way, that anger is love. I feel I'm wanting to protect my own. Then you put the salve on and you do the comfort. Now, women, you're just naturals. You just step in there, put the salve on, and all the lessons can wait till later. Let's comfort the child. Let's get the child well. Let's get them out of pain. Is that right? Is that what the women do? Raise your hand. Get, sure. And, and you think, guys, get out of the room. I can handle this. I, I always say it's why all the football stars, when they get hurt, say, hi, mom. <laughs> they never say, hi, dad. Because dad said, why did you drop it? Why did you let the guy hit you? The mom is saying, <laughs> I love my boy. Oh, and the dad said, oh, sick. Uh, get over it. It's just total. See, but I, it helped me understand you can have anger and tenderness in the same context. And it's sort of like what's happening to Christ. I'm not trying to get him to justify my morbid emotional life. But he's angry in the context that death has robbed them of joy. Death has turned them into weepers. And death came with sin. And he has come not only to pay for our sins, but to conquer the power of death. And he goes and says, Lazarus, come out of that grave. And someday I will sound like a trumpet and the voice of an archangel, and I will shout the name of my own, and they shall rise from the dead. Boom. I will see to it that death is conquered once and for all. And I think he will say it with emotion. Come forth. Come forth. Can you imagine him saying that to every saint martyred for him or saying that to old Stephen? Get up, Stephen. They thought they were going to... Uh, put out Christianity in Acts 7, but I say, get up, stand up. I didn't come to be defeated by death. I came to end death for the righteous. So this powerful conqueror, he comes to conquer death, and he weeps with his own in the midst of our death. When a Pat Potter is burying three loved ones within a year, the Lord Jesus, we used to sing a little song really old. I had to look it up. You may have sung it. It's so simple, but I'll just give you the essence. We, someone to care, someone to share, all your burdens like no other can do. He'll come down from the sky, brush those tears from your eyes. You're his child, and he cares for you. Casting all your cares on him, 
because he cares for you. Why do you think they called Jesus man of sorrow? They never called him man of joy. Although I know he had joy because he said in John 15, my joy, I leave with you. So he had joy, but he's also man of sorrow. He entered our sorrow. He entered our pain. Uh, he's already wept over you. He already interceded for you. And so I would just say, in this narrative, I see three things jump out at me. Divine timing is sometimes slow in our eyes. You remember what Peter said? Do not count the slackness of God to be as though he's not keeping promise. He's only delayed the coming of his son in order to save more. His delay has a bigger purpose than you wanting it right now. And whatever trial you're going through, whatever you're living with, as God's child, he's got a perfect timetable of when he's going to deliver you, of what he's going to show you, what he's going to teach you. And often his delays are to teach us vital lessons about just, I'm waiting on him. I'm trusting him in the meantime. Imagine Job, the long wait. I mean, you can read the 42 chapters of Job, and you think it all happened in one year. You don't know. It was a pretty good while. Boils, burials, loss of everything. Did God ever show up? Yeah, he did. In the whirlwind. And he said, I had to teach you some things, Job, and now I'm going to restore everything I took. As long as you know God is in charge, you can trust his calendar. You can trust his calendar. And two, if you come to know Jesus Christ, whether you know it or not, you made funeral arrangements. You're already planned for the day of your last breath. And he will put you to sleep. And he will resurrect your body. And someday, you too will hear the shout. Get up. You're going home. I can get you there in spirit. Now I'm going to bring your body to spend eternity with me. Just because you believed in me, I'll see to it you never die. Eternal life never ends. And finally, I must say this. I have to let you go. I'm running late. But I must say this. One of the hardest things about pastoring is emotional gear shifting. Some of you look quasi-mad all the time. Some of you can get happy once in a while. But did you know on the same day, in the same day, I've rejoiced and wanted to dance. And the same day, plan the funeral of a deacon and a weeping widow. And I don't know what mood I'm supposed to be in. I, I'll get a young couple coming in to plan their wedding. And I go over here to plan a widow's husband's funeral. One is weeping, heart sick. Another is just can't wait till next Saturday comes and let's say the wedding or next month. And so they're, they're just exulting, enjoying all the prospects of youth and marriage and 
a family, wonderful. Sure, Paul said we weep with those that weep and we rejoice with those that rejoice. Let me ask you, do you have that kind of emotional wellness that you can do both? Or are you a stoic? And let me tell you, when the Greeks read chapter 11, they could not believe it and would not because the philosophy that guided Greece at this time was stoicism. And stoicism gave us the word apatheia. A, Greek negative, a, pathos, no passion, no emotion allowed. The gods are not emotional. The gods don't give a damn. The gods don't care. And then God walks on the earth, the true God. He said, I weep when my people weep. Their sorrows become my sorrows. I'm not the God of the Stoics. I'm not the non-feeling God. Matter of fact, Hebrew says when he went back, we now have one at the right hand of God who intercedes for he feels and sympathizes with everything we go through. That's your Savior. And I'm late and you must go. God bless you.